1: I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this opportunity to learn a little bit more about our faith. On today's program, Bishop Sheen will give a talk about confession, and he will also assist us by giving us a catechism lesson uh, on the topic of good and evil. And so let us begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. And so now let us enjoy Bishop Sheen as he gives us a talk on confession.
2: And may I begin by telling you that we are living in about... Mm -hmm the first age in the history of the world that has denied guilt and sin. Everyone today believes he's immaculately conceived. There are no sinners. We're just patients, but we're not penitents. Interesting it is that Carl Menninger of the Menninger Institute of Psychiatry in Kansas has just written a book saying, what has happened to sin? Curious that as the moral theologians and our catechisms drop the idea of sin, a psychiatrist is reminding us that there is sin. He, for example, has said that the theologians gave up sin and then the lawyers took it up. And sin became a crime. And then the legalists gave it up, psychiatrists picked it up, and then it became a complex. Now, sin is a reality in the world. And we have to face it, for we are all sinners, everyone. As a matter of fact, we cannot begin to receive the mercy of God until we recognize that we are sinners. Now, what happens when we repress guilt and sin? And we do that. Men sin and they pay no attention to it. Same with women. Well, it has a tremendous effect on our mind and sometimes on our body. When we do not bring our sins to the surface and confess them to the good Lord. You have heard of transplants in medicine. A kidney transplant, a heart transplant. And you've often read too that the transplant was not effective or the heart transplant was not effective. Why? Because the body resisted it. There are antibodies in our organism that will not assimilate and take hold of a new organism. Now, our soul is that way. It has antibodies. And when any sin gets into the soul, then we're disturbed. Mind is unhappy. It's very much like having a broken bone. The bone hurts. Why? Because the bone is not where it ought to be. And when our conscience is not where it ought to be, then we suffer. We have a disturbance of conscience. We're uneasy. We may try to cover it up by drink and amusement and so forth but in moments of quiet the guilt is there recall some of the effects of guilt as portrayed for us by Shakespeare now just think of it Shakespeare was born in 1564 I hope that was it that's coming out of my subconsciousness don't look it up But I think that I was in second year college. I learned that Shakespeare was born in 1564 and died in 1616. Well, in any case, what is important is the fact that hundreds of years before we had psychiatry, he tells of a complex, a psychosis in the mind of Macbeth, and a neuroses in the mind of Lady Macbeth. Now Macbeth and Lady Macbeth had contrived to kill the king in order to seize the throne. After the murder, Macbeth always seems to see a knife before him. He said, what is this I see before me? A knife with a handle toward my hand? There was no knife. This was a psychosis. This was the way the guilt was coming out. Lady Macbeth, she washed her hands every quarter of an hour. She saw blood on the hands. And she asked, Are not all the waters of the seven seas Enough to wash this blood incarnadine for my hands? There was no blood on her hands. This was the effect on her mind of the suppression of guilt. A woman once came to me about her brother. She said, He's been going to doctors for about four or five years and he is no better his weight has gone down to 90 pounds and would you see him and I said if his trouble is mental I cannot help him he belongs with a psychiatrist if however there is a moral basis for his condition then I can help him the man came he weighed about 90 pounds frail, fearful and I said talk to me for a half hour I will not interrupt you he talked for about 40 minutes and I said how much money did you steal he said I didn't steal I said how much was it he said I resent that I am no thief I did not steal how much was it He said, $3,000. He said, how did you know I stole? I said, I didn't know you stole. Well, why did you ask me? Well, I said, as you talked, you told me that whenever you put money in the collection box, you always wiped it off first. And I thought, perhaps you had dirty money. Yes, he said he had stolen $3,000. Well, we made arrangements to pay it back, and his health picked up. This was the guilt on his soul just think my dear ladies of how many mentally disturbed women we are going to have in the United States in the next 10 or 15 years when the guilt of abortion begins to attack the mind and soul for the present They justify it on the grounds that everyone is doing it and it's only scar tissue anyway. As one doctor said to a girl who came in and said, well, it's only a little scar tissue, would you remember it? Would you dismember it? And uh, the doctor said, what did you intend to call the scar tissue? So in years from now, the guilt will come out in a peculiar way. Though at present, there may not be any. The guilt may not manifest itself at once. That is very evident in the course of the life of King David. David was one day on the top of his palace in the penthouse, and he looked across the street, and he saw a woman on the adjoining penthouse, be. And he asked Bessabee to come over and see his etchings. And he loved Bessabee not wisely but too well. And she's found with child. The husband, Uriah, was away at war. Away at war. David called him back. As king, he could do that. And he said, go home to your wife. He said, no, I'm at war. We're not allowed to be with a wife when we're fighting. David then got him drunk, said, go home. He slept at David's front door. David was trying to blame the paternity onto the husband. So finally, finding that he couldn't get rid of him that way... He said to the general, Put him in the front lines. Men have to die in battle. Maybe Uriah will be killed. Uriah was killed. It didn't bother David in the least. Until about... Seven or eight months after... The prophet Nathan came to him. And he said, Nathan... I have a problem. said, David, I have a problem. And you as king must settle it. There was a poor man who had one tiny little ewe lamb. Next door to this poor man lived a rich man who stole the poor lamb and made a banquet for his rich friends. And David immediately became interested in social justice. David said, This shall not be. He shall pay with his life. And the property shall be restored fourfold. And Nathan said, Thou art the man. You took the ewe lamb of Uriah. And you killed that ewe lamb. The ewe lamb was best to be I mean. And you have taken this lamb away from the husband. And that was the moment when David sat down and wrote the famous Psalm 50. Have mercy on me, O Lord, have mercy on me. Or I think it's maybe 51 in the New Scriptures. You see, sometimes, now not always, but sometimes we can cover up our want of individual justice by a great love of social justice. Remember when Judas was at the banquet room of Simon? The woman came in and poured ointment on the feet of our blessed Lord. Judas said, Why this waste? Why not give this money to the poor? Well you can imagine Judas going on making an attack against our blessed Lord, saying for example, I heard you on the Mount of Beatitude say blessed to the poor, where's your love of the poor now? Have you forgotten all of those people that are living on hanging shacks in the road between Jericho and Jerusalem? Remember the days when we walked through the inner city of Jerusalem? Have you no interest in those poor? Look at these humble fishermen, shacks here at Capernaum. Where's your love of the poor? Our Lord said, Judas, you have the poor with you always. Me, not always. Was Judas interested in the poor? No he was robbing the apostolic purse. And that's the way he covered it up. So when we suppress our guilt, it is there for eternity. Unless it is forgiven. When it's forgiven, it's completely blotted out. Well, how do we Now, through the mercy of God and the fullness of faith in Christ, how are our sins forgiven? By confession. What is confession? Nudity. Nudity of the soul. Stripping ourselves of all false excuses and shams and pretenses and revealing ourselves as we really are. Do you know, my good people, that as we have given up examination of conscience and confession, that nudity increases in the world, physical nudity? Let us study it for a moment. When Adam and Eve were in the garden... They were naked, but not ashamed. Why? Because they were covered with the aura of God's grace. It, as it were, shone round about them, robed in glory. And hence, there was no sense at all of nakedness. After they fell, they perceived themselves to be naked. Why? They lost the grace of God. And then they had to be clothed. Now, I could give you, and I wish we had time, but I'm not going to do it, to tell you how their nakedness was covered up and to explain the mystery of it. Do you know how their nakedness was covered? Yes, fig leaves, I know, but they wilted. Their shame was revealed. How was it covered up? God made for them the skins of animals. God did something. It was done vicariously. An animal was killed, not them. And thirdly, it involved the shedding of blood. And I could take you all through the Old Testament and unfolding that story. But the point is that they were naked and ashamed because they'd lost the grace of God. In our modern world, we're bringing back nudity. Trying to get back into the Garden of Eden without walking up the hill of Calvary. And it cannot be done. So what is confession? It's another kind of nudity. Not epidemic or epidermic nudity, but ethical nudity. In which we just say to the dear Lord, This is the way I am. I'm a miserable sinner. And when we make that confession, then what happens is what might be called the recycling of human garbage. We hear a great deal today about the recycling of garbage, but I'm speaking about the recycling of human garbage. When you go to confession, have your sins forgiven by the blood of Christ, incidentally, applied through the priest, when you go to confession and have your sins forgiven, there is always, of course, an effect of that sin that remains. Suppose, Suppose that I told one of these little children that every time they did anything wrong they were to nail put a nail in a board can you imagine that every time you did wrong disobeyed your mother for example you were to drive a nail in the board and then every time your mother forgave you and you said I'm sorry the mother would tell you pull the nail out now is there anything left? What's left? Well what? hole, yes. A hole. That's the effect of sin. See how wise these little children are? So that even though the sin is forgiven, we have to make some reparation for it. And that's the reason you're giving a penance and confession to fill up the holes. But we do not have to make adequate reparation for sin because we have the mercy of the saints and, I mean the intercession of the saints and the mercy of our blessed Lord but when we go to confession then our lives are completely changed now, I'm going to give you some examples of how lives are changed by submitting to the mercy of God There was a man who used to come into a church in London, St. Patrick's Church. Every morning when I would open the church, he would come in and take one of the back pews, kneel down, not go to communion. He would come in about seven o'clock. Not go to communion until about nine. He never used a prayer book. he would meditate until about 11.30 in the morning, then go out, come back again in the afternoon, and stay until the church closed at night. Never spoke to anyone. After noticing this for several months, I said to him, if you, were you always as good as you are now? That was a test question because if he said yes, I knew he would, I would know he wasn't any good. (laughs) And he said, Well, considering the graces that I have received, I am a thousand times worse now than I ever was. Then he told me about himself. He was an alcoholic. And he said, I was such an alcoholic that I used to take off my shoe. Shoes at the pub door, the saloon door, the pub door, and sell them for a drink. But, he said, I would take the pledge every Ash Wednesday and keep it until Easter Sunday. And he did that every year, he says. Then one day he said to himself, if I can be good for 40 days, why can't I be good for 40 years? So I decided to be good for 40 years. But he said it wasn't quite that easy. I went into Maiden Lane Church and I remembered him very well and I dropped into Maiden Lane Church about nine months ago in London just to say a prayer for this good man. Though I'm sure he doesn't need it. And he came into the church. There were three steps leading up from the Covent Garden section of London to the main floor of the church. And he knelt in the front pew for benediction. And as Father Carney laid hold of the monstrance to begin the benediction, he said there came over him overwhelming passion for drink and for vice. He said if the temptations of a lifetime were concentrated in one moment, they could not equal that agony. And he said it was so great that I couldn't stand it. So I bounded out of the pew, ran down the middle aisle, and I stumbled on the three steps. And as the benediction bell rang, he said, I tore out my heart and I turned around and I said, Dear Lord, forgive me, I will go to confession. And he said, I have had no drink since, and I spend my life in prayer. How many hours do you pray a day? Oh, he said, about 18. I said, what do you consider a really good day? He said, 24. I live, he said, in the same dive that I lived in when I was an alcoholic. And many a night, I will kneel alongside of my cot all night long, praying for all the alcoholics. This was recycled garbage that the Lord loves. No wonder our Lord said, there's more joy in heaven for one sinner doing penance than 99 just who need not penance. Then another story. What, another story? Yes, all right, another story. This is a story about a girl the last one was about a boy I received a call from two little girls who came to the rectory to go immediately to an apartment house near the Hudson River and they said Kitty is dying who is Kitty they said don't you know Kitty Kitty Everybody knows Kitty. I inquired about her illness... and the little girl said she's dying. I took the Blessed Sacrament and Holy Oils. I climbed up five dingy flights of stairs... to one of the dirtiest rooms that I was ever in. Meat, fat, papers, rags on the floor... and over in the corner. A a dirty cot. This young girl on it and very sick are you Kitty yes everybody knows me and I said Kitty would you like to make your peace with the good Lord and she said no I can't because I'm the worst girl in the city of New York no I said you're not the worst girl in the city of New York because the worst girl in the city of New York says I'm the best girl in the city of New York. I begged and pleaded with her to go and she said, no, I can't. I'm too rotten. She said, look at my arms, all black and blue. That's from my husband. If I don't bring in enough money from the streets, he beats me. Now he's poisoned me. Now, dying of poison. And I rehearsed for the parables of our blessed Lord, and finally she went to confession. But I had not anointed her because it took so long to convince her of mercy. And the poison was getting into the different areas of the brain. And as it did, she seemed to have the impression of losing the external organ. For example, she would reach for her ear and say, Mother, here's my ear, and you keep it when I'm gone. And here, Anne, there was a girl who came in the room whom she begged to give up her life. And here's my eye. and and she would say, here's my tongue, you keep that. And I realized then that she was very serious, and I anointed her, and immediately she was all right. And I said, sorry, Kitty, you're back in this world again. And she said, yes, just to prove that I can be better. So she became an apostle among the very people with whom she worked. And I would be hearing confessions on a Saturday night Open a slide. Father, this is the girl that Kitty told you about. Father, this is the boy that Kitty told you about. One night, she came to the rectory and she said, I have a girl who committed murder. Where is she? She's in the church. I said, no, the church is locked. Well, she said she's across the street then, seated on the stoop. So I went to the door and called her over. And in a short time, she went to confession. And that was the way that Kitty continued to exercise the apostolate of mercy after having been forgiven. Now we have all enjoyed it. We are the most fortunate people in the world. Because when we're burdened, we can go to the good Lord and receive an external sign that's needed. An external sign that we have been forgiven. Sin is not the worst thing in the world. The worst thing in the world is the denial of sin. If I am blind and deny there's any such thing as light, will I ever see? If I am deaf and deny there's any such thing as sound, will I ever hear? And if I deny that I am a sinner, how can I ever be forgiven? So worse than sin is the denial of sin, which is our modern attitude toward life. If then your soul is burdened, take it to the Lord. He died for you. He will forgive you. And just as there's hardly anything more refreshing than a good bath, So there's nothing spiritually more refreshing than an absolution. The beauty of it is we can start all over again. The Lord's mercy is unlimited. But we just have to have trust in him. So I will leave you this consoling thought... If you had never sinned, you never could call Jesus Savior.
0: You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith.
1: Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you for joining me for this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living I hope you enjoyed that reflection on confession. Uh, I always find that Bishop Sheen ends with a very powerful statement and he reminds us that if we had never sinned, we could not call Jesus Savior. Jesus came to save us from our sins and we are blessed that he did that. And so let us rejoice in this gift of salvation. You know, bishop sheen was always very good about reminding us about what the lord did for us and as you continue to listen to his talks you will find that over and over again he shares with us god's love for us all the things that jesus did for us and uh he grows on you he truly does he helps you grow in your faith by reminding you of jesus love for mankind So now let us uh, continue to learn our faith a little bit more. We're going to have a catechism talk. And, of course, it was a 50-lesson series that he shared many years ago. And I want to thank our good friends at FultonSheen.com for providing these quality recordings today. And you could purchase your own copy by visiting their website at www.FultonSheen.com. And there they have well over 300 audio recordings. They're quality, quality remastered recordings that you can have for your own personal library. And so again, www.fultonsheen.com. So now let us uh, enjoy this Catechism lesson entitled, Good and Evil.
2: Peace be to you. This universe of ours is a free universe. It is a universe of character making of soul making Almighty God is placed into our hands Think of it The power to make ourselves saints or devils It is up to us There are some laws that We cannot disobey, for example, the law of gravitation, certain biological laws like circulation of blood, but in a moral universe, we are free either to obey the laws of God or to disobey them, just as we are perfectly free, for example, to obey the laws of health or to disobey them. What then makes a thing good? What makes a thing bad? What makes a thing good? The thing is good when it attains the purpose for which it was made. I have before me now a stopwatch. I'm talking to you without any notes that are written out merely developing ideas that have been given to those who are interested in these ideas for many, many years. Therefore, I have to have a watch before me in order to decide when I should stop. Is it a good watch? How will I know whether it is good? By asking, what is the purpose of a watch? The purpose of a watch is to keep time. Does it keep time? Yes. Yes. Therefore, it is a good watch. Now let us apply that to our ultimate end. Why were we made? What is the purpose of living? The purpose of living is to be supremely happy. How do we become supremely happy? By attaining the life and truth and love which is God. Anything I do, therefore, That helps me to attain that goal or purpose is good. Alongside of me is an organ. It is not in the church, it is in my office. Rather in my home. As I talk to you, I am looking at the notes on that organ. Which note is good and which note is bad? Which note is right and which note is wrong? One cannot say that any particular note is right and any particular note is wrong. But what makes any note right or wrong? It's correspondence to a standard. Once I have a piece of music before me, I know what I ought to do, what note I should hit, what note I ought not to hit. So, too, we have a moral standard within us, which is the conscience. And what is good and bad is in relationship to that standard which is not of our own making. We do not draw our own maps, and decide that the distance from Chicago to New York will be so-and-so? We do not arbitrarily set our own watches. We set them by a standard outside of us. When we buy any material, we do not decide that a yard, for example, will be 24 inches instead of 36. So a good, therefore, is that which helps us in relationship to the attainment of purpose and goals and destinies which are in accordance with right reason. What makes a thing bad? Well, here is a pencil. Is it a good pencil? Yes. It writes. That is why it was made. Is it a good can-opener? It certainly is not. Suppose I use it as a can opener. What happens? First of all, I do not open the can. I do not attain the purpose for which I use the pencil. And secondly, I destroy the pencil. Now, if I, for example, decide to do certain things which I ought not to do, I do not attain the purpose that I hope to attain. For example, becoming an alcoholic does not make me happy. Furthermore, I destroy myself. Just as I destroy the pencil in using it to open the can. When I disobey God, I do not make myself very happy on the inside. And I certainly destroy any peace of soul that I ought to have. Evil, you see, is not positive. Evil is either an excess or a defect of what is good. And excess or a defect, food is good. Too little of it is bad. Too much of it is bad. Drink is good. Too little of it is bad. Too much of it is bad. Sleep is good. When however sleep interferes with duty, it is not good. Evil is very much like darkness. It is the absence of light. It has no purpose inside of itself. Rather, it has no substance of its own. That is a better way to put it. All badness is spoiled goodness. A bad apple is a good apple that became rotten. Because evil has no capital of its own It is a parasite on goodness. Looking back then upon our reason and will in this universe, we can see, as we said before, that this universe is a veil of soul making. We were made to be good. We were made to attain the truth. But, oh, how weak we are. Look at the limitations of our reason. And then look at the limitations of our will. First of all, our reason. How poor it is. Even those that had very good reasons admitted that in the end they had captured but just a little of what was true. Isaac Newton, the great scientist, said that he felt as if he was standing on the seashore of infinite truth, the vast waters of knowledge stretched endlessly before him. Socrates, one of the wisest of the Greeks, said, there is only one thing that I know, and that is that I know nothing. Thomas Aquinas, who was the greatest mind that ever lived, said at the end of his life that all that he had written seemed to him so much straw in comparison to a dim vision that he received of heaven. And too, quite apart from these learned men, Look at the weak reason of people today. Their confusion of mind. Their failure even to recognize any such thing as truth or goodness. They will read one book on Monday and they will say, Oh, I'm a materialist. Then they'll read another book on Tuesday and they're communist. Then they read another book later on in the week and they reject both of those systems. They're laying down tracks one day, tearing them up the next. They're planting seed one week, tearing the seed up the next. They're never, never working toward one goal. It's no wonder there are so many psychotics and neurotics in our world. They're just rehashing a lot of old errors and giving them new labels. Calling some of the old errors very novel. That's only because they do not know what is ancient. Not only is our reason weak but also our will. Even when we know what is right, how hard it is sometimes to do. We are besieged by temptations. We often feel very much like Gathe, who said that he often wondered why he was one man because he felt there was enough evil in him and goodness to make both a rogue and a gentleman. St. Augustine said, and we may have occasion to quote this again whatever I am, I am not what I ought to be. Looking back, therefore, on what we are, we have to admit that our reason is weak. Our will is feeble. Our mind is dark. Our will is lame. We need help. We need more truth for our mind. We need more love and goodness for our will are we going to get it? Would God give it to us? Oh, certainly God could give it to us, not because we are worthy, because rather it seems that it would be in keeping with his goodness. To tell us something and to give us added power. And furthermore, we are teachable, we have minds. God could certainly give us new truths, Our nature is constantly receiving invisible forces. We would not have flowers and trees if there were no sun communicating light that we do not see. It's only that by which we see. So God might send either a visible or an invisible force to illuminate us. And then also he could strengthen our will. And that certainly we need. We cannot lift ourselves by the lobes of our ears. Our aspirations are too weak. Look at the resolutions we take on New Year's and break. We need power. And that power's got to come from the outside. An electric light bulb is useless unless power is supplied from without. We have a stomach, but we need food from the outside. We have ears, but we need sound from the outside. Well, very well, then, God might indeed illumine our reason. But how would we know it? Suppose there was such a thing as revelation. Could we tell? Certainly there are many who make claims... To be messengers from God? Reason has to set up certain standards. Even before there is any revelation. We just simply cannot allow some man to come upon the stage of history and said, say, listen to me, I am from God. Or I had a revelation. I once received a telegram from someone, and the telegram read, report to port... 53, New York Harbor to receive illumination from the Holy Spirit. Well, I'm very sure that the individual who sent it, whoever he was, believed that he had a revelation. But we cannot accept the revelation of, a, of any individual who claims merely that he has one. We cannot accept, for example, someone who says, I've got a book here, an angel wrote it for me. And this world of ours would be filled with crackpots if Sky came to this country from Mars, we would say, show me your passport. How do I know you're from Mars? So too, if anyone is coming from God with a revelation for our reason and the strength for our will, reason is going to impose certain tests and these tests are three. And they're tests that can be verified by reason and by history. First, whoever comes should be pre-announced. Two, he should work miracles in attestation of the fact that he is a messenger. Third, nothing that he ever teaches or reveals to us should be contrary to human reason, though it may be above it. Those are three tests. That's the standard. That's a measuring rod. First, we say anyone who comes should be pre-announced. After all, brides pre-announce their wedding. Automobile manufacturers tell us when a new model would appear and if God is going to send someone to this earth certainly the least that God can do is to let us know I'm sending someone. That will do away with this idea of any individual suddenly appearing upon the stage of history and saying I am God or I have a message from God. A pre-announcement test Therefore, be the test of prophecy. And secondly, there will be another test, namely miracles. He who comes ought to be able to do marvels, or signs to authenticate his message. Not so much. You see, in order to do things that would excite our wonder, make us say, Oh, but rather. Miracles that would prove that God was with him. And then thirdly, certainly anyone who comes to this earth must never in his teaching contradict human reason. We may indeed have oh mysteries revealed to us that are above our reason. That they can never be contrary. For example, if anyone comes and teaches immorality, or that the soul is not immortal. Well, we would know such a person could not come from God because statements of this kind are contrary to reason. Looking back then, we have three measuring rods or tests designed by reason, applicable to history. Now, line up all the claimants that come from God according to their words. March them out. Line them up. Stand there one by one. Let us say to them, we are going to judge you. Buddha, Confucius, Laozi Mohammed, Marx, Brahmins, witch doctors, Hindu philosophers, university professors, Eddie, Heidegger, anyone you please, and the founder of the latest cult in New York or Los Angeles. Stand there. We want to ask you questions. First, and we're just going to use one test in this lesson, were you ever pre announced? Anyone of you? And Buddha? Did anyone ever know that you were coming to this earth? Confucius? Was the place of your birth prophesied? Socrates, did anyone foretell that you would die of hemlock juice? Mohammed, was there ever an ancient tradition that you would be born among a certain people? Was there ever a description as to how you would die? Did any one of your mothers know that you were coming? Is there a single one of you that can point to an historical record in which it was foretold where you would live, where you would die, how you would die, what would be your character, the manner of your teaching, the kind of enemies that you would provoke and evoke by the dignity of teaching? Answer me. Is there no one that can step out To this moment, you see, we have not regarded Christ as any different from any other messenger from God. Now one steps out of the ranks. What is your name? My name is Jesus Christ. Will you ever pre-announce Are there any historical records long before your coming describing the details of your existence? Are there documents attesting to the work that you would do and the purpose of your coming? He is the only one that can answer yes. So We say to the others, step back. You may be interesting but you do not satisfy my first test. You were not pre-announced and that's the least that God could do. You have only your own word but we are interested in the person of Christ He says he was pre-announced. In that case, he will have to study the documents. That will be the subject of the next lesson.
0: God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith.
1: Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you once again for joining me for a few lessons that we needed to hear from today. We always need to know what good and evil is. A lot of times evil disguises itself as good, so let us always be aware. The devil is a liar and a thief. Remember that. He is a liar and a thief, and he's the master of deception. So let us always pray for holy discernment. Uh, to figure these things out. And I would encourage you to bring a friend next week as we continue to share these valuable lessons given by the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. I want to thank my producer, uh, Alex, uh, for his fine work in uh, helping me to put this show together to go out over the internet and uh, all the volunteers here at Radio Maria Canada. We'd ask you to pray for us and, of course, support us financially where you can, uh, you can uh, make an online donation by visiting, of course, our a little Donate uh, tab on our website. Uh, or again, just uh, by all means, uh, send a check in the mail. We love hearing that. The check is in the mail uh, to our address on the webpage. And so until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace.
0: You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.